I'm back with Sunita Semi. Hi, Sunita. How are you? I'm fine. Hi, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. Welcome back to the podcast. Super. Thank you so much. I think this is your third one, isn't it? It's my third, yeah. God, I can't, I can't get away. You can't get rid of me. No, I know. Well, we don't want to. Don't want to, of course. Um, and, and what the first podcast we talked about was you were talking about diversity in the classroom. Yes. And we're going to talk about something quite similar today, which is around how, because a lot of organisations are doing things like diversity and inclusion type programs which has a learning and development element and you've got quite a lot of experience of that and you had some ideas about how we can bring that to life mm. do you want to just tell us a little bit about that yeah I, th- I think I think it'd be really good today to touch on a, a the first point what I've noticed as a facilitator is having worked in this sort of domain of diversity and inclusion is that uh, you really have to look at your own inclusion practices and behavior as a facilitator uh, when you're running a class um, you know one of the things that really comes up when I'm working is unconscious bias and how we're all biased so I think that's quite a good way to start is to think about how as facilitators we're biased and then maybe to go to the next layer you know once we're running workshops or asked to work run workshops or asked to um, as DNI specialists to come into companies how do we make sure that this doesn't just become not another training program, not another tick in the box? How do L&D departments make programs stick and make people uh, feel committed to it? Yeah, I think that would be really interesting because we, we've actually done the previous podcast on unconscious bias as well. And it's one of my favourite subjects. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And the more mm-hmm. I learn about it, actually, the more interesting I find it. Mm. So I'm quite interested in looking at that. And But I, I've I've probably run that workshop, I don't know, let's say 20 times, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. still learn it something every time. I still mm-hmm. learn about it. I, someone sent me a great TED Talk the other day, and I thought, oh, God, there's another great angle on it. So I can't mm-hmm. imagine how just doing one short workshop to somebody coming at it cold, is. It's I can't see how it's going to stick or make much difference. It's not. It's not. And I think that's a really good, that's, a, that's an excellent point. You know, it, it's such a good example of, as you as a facilitator, you know, having done it 20 times, you're still learning. And I think that's key. We're always learning. Well, let, let's go back to what you what you said first, I think was a really good point, because you said that we need to model. And actually, I mean, irrespective of the rest of the topic, I think one of the key skills of being a facilitator is creating that psychological safety. Is it's, it's, And mm-hmm. inclusion is such a huge part of that. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we can't not talk about bias when we do that, but I think Mm-hmm. as you know professional L&D people professional facilitators we've got to be really really good at inclusion mm-hmm. so, so let's start mm-hmm. talking about that so yeah. if, if we're going to be fab fantastic amazing inclusive facilitators what what do we need to be doing or not doing well I think the first thing is that you know we have to lead by example so it's really up to the facilitator to model uh, what it means to be inclusive and to be to be daring in in front of a room full of full of people, and that means that really, it's creating a very safe environment where people don't feel judged, and as a facilitator, really having compassion for people, even if they say something which you don't agree with, it's always with that assuming positive intent, and you know, and also showing that in your words. So there's something about your behaviour and also the words that you're using. You know, it is it's creating inclusive behavior in a or creating inclusive environment in a classroom in a, in a in a workshop is about you know getting people to ask 
difficult questions, provocative questions in a confidential setting, you know, trying things out and offering a range of emotions where people really feel that they can use this platform to express what they're feeling. So I think that's, first of all, very key. That's that psychological safety thing, isn't it? That where people feel safe to take that risk safe to express themselves or whatever I, su- I suppose really the question is how how do we do that bearing in mind that we're biased that's yeah that's a really interesting but because i think the how is also as, as important as the what so how do you do that well first of all i think it's really important just to make sure that everybody's welcome right from the beginning one thing i do before my facilitations i try and speak to people or at least email them individually and tell them what I'm doing, a little bit of an agenda, um, just a high level uh, agenda, what's happening on the day. And if they have any questions, they can ask me. And I think what's important is that everybody gets the same message. Right. It's very fair. I'm not having any one to one conversations with one person in a workshop and not with other people. So it, I think it's about being very um, objective and also having the same type of dialogue that you're having that you have with one person you have with with the other 10 so it's so it starts before the workshop in terms of making people feel welcome being consistent across every potential attendee participant yes and i also send i mean this is again choice i send my bio sometimes i send my cv to 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 the to the participants so they have an idea of who i am i'm sharing before they need to share Right. Again, I th- I think it just this openness rather than just finding out who I am on nine o'clock on a Monday morning. I do think it's and that comes from me, not from the L&D department or their manager. That comes. I send the mail myself. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that as being particularly important. But I suppose you are, you are breaking down that barrier, aren't you? Just you just there's an openness in there, but there's also you know content so they're getting to know you do you have yeah. a do you send a photo i send a photo of myself and my bio is really about me it's not about my coaching or my experience it's about the fact that i'm married and i've got two children and i live in geneva and i'm indian so it's you know people want to know who 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 is this person they're going to spend the day with and 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 if you are opening yourself up and and giving a little bit sort of a uh, a picture of your world I think it kind of invites people to then to open up their world that's a really interesting point I wouldn't have thought about that from the personal thing either I would have assumed that you had gone in there going about you know 25 years experience of this 50 years experience of the other I wouldn't have thought you would be there revealing the personal stuff well we live in such a sort of you know especially the context I live in, you know, live in and I'm sure it's the same all over the world now we live in such a globalized world where you know, people can, you know, people kind of know how many, by your age, where you've probably, how many years you've been a coach, or you can look at people's LinkedIn profiles. That information is quite accessible. Yeah, true. The the personal stuff is not accessible. People do want to know who you are, you know, and it's not about, um, it's probably about who you are outside the, the, the workshop, who are, who you are in your real life. Um, as Jung said, you know, not the persona, the real self. Okay, so so that's kind of stuff we can do at the beginning to get yeah. to get people to get to know us before the, not the beginning, sorry, before the beginning, if that makes any sense. Does that make yeah. sense? Before it the does. beginning. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> um, 
so we're sending people stuff, we're introducing them, maybe maybe we are even sending some kind of photo and bio so there's a personal link there. What about um, when, we, when the session actually starts, what are we actually doing in the session to make sure that we're being inclusive? One of the things I think is really important is remembering people's names. Yeah, that's quite a good one, isn't it? And, I, and ideally their faces, so you don't mix up the names. No. <laughs> that's my... Maybe. That's my difficulty, trying to remember who's who. I can remember the names, just don't remember which who they belong to. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> well, in my defence, in my defence, I think that I have a condition called face blind, which means that I actually do genuinely struggle to recognise people's faces. Oh. I think it is a proper. So, talking of diversity and inclusion, this is this is a much underrepresented potential disability. Ah, it's interesting. Interesting because very often people get the other; they they forget the names, not the faces. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because I'm dyslexic, so I find it very hard names. And so, you know, if they if I see their names written down, I then have to see it in my mind, and then I I have to hear it, and I actually go around saying so. So, if you've got 15 people in the room, I'll say so after I said hello to them, and I make sure I shake everybody's hand when they come in, and um. I mean, I work for different companies and some companies is very kind of laid back and people don't shake hands, but I shake everybody's hand. And it's just kind of just saying welcome. I, I think beginnings and endings are really important. And I think that's a huge part of making people feel comfortable and included. And of course, you know, when you're running a diversity and inclusion workshop, I mean, it just it seems like a no brainer. You, My whole being is about being inclusive because I'm trying to get these people to understand the importance of inclusion and the detrimental effects of exclusion. Um, so shaking hands is one. I then... That's an interesting one as well, because this, this, the, the first time this ever happened to me was the other week, or the other week, the other month. Um, and I was at a meeting, and the person, mm-hmm. at the, the person at the beginning wouldn't shake my hand for religious reasons. Mm. And I, I was quite... I, you know, I didn't tickle mind, I took it in my stride. But I did feel less welcome than the people that she had shaken their hands with i.e. women um i did feel less welcome and i thought oh god i'm in this person's way i'm unwelcoming and it it did very much make me feel and there's nothing she did wrong she was absolutely lovely and and sweet and friendly and funny and all everything but just that simple act yeah uh, which she explained as well you know she didn't let it pass unexplained she she did explain so it was you know it was uncomfortable but it made me feel uncomfortable from that but but, uh, and i did feel unwelcome yeah so it's it's it's, it's a small point but it's powerful it is powerful and i mean i've I've had situations where i've where i've been coaching on a leadership program and um i think one of the one of the men in my group he never shook my hand but every time i met him he put his hand on his heart and that was his way of saying of shaking my hand it was lovely it was just so nice but i think it, it's again, it's meeting. This is another thing which I think about about inclusion as a facilitator is really important is meeting people where they are and not where you want them to be right from the get go. That's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah. So had it been the other way around, had this person been the participant in the room and I'd have gone over to shake hands and she would have explained. Yeah. That's a point where had I thought about the hand on the heart thing, that would have been quite yeah. a nice thing to do. Yes. I could have then said, oh, OK, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and use that instead and then we'd have had a bit of a laugh about it maybe yes that's a, that's a good technique and I think I th- yes and I think you know again this is all 
their cultural reasons. I think it's wonderful she explained as well why. So that's kind of how we might make that extra effort to welcome people before the event and then actually at the event itself. And and, mm. and as you said about the goodbyes as well. But what about during the actual facilitation? Because we've mentioned a couple of times now that we're all biased. We're desperately trying to make people feel included, but perhaps we've been put in a position like I just described as well. What are we going to be doing there to be that really cracking, fantastic, inclusive facilitator? Well, the thing is, biased is part of human nature it doesn't make us bad people we're human this is part of the human condition we're all biased as a facilitator you have to remain very objective and curious and when when biases show up is 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 to assume positive intent and not to assume that you know it's coming from a bad place or and it's really to to seek understanding now when you're feeling that bias as a facilitator, and that's happened to me, it's happened to all of us. Yeah, it happens to me. Of course it does. I mean, you know, it's when, and there's different types of unconscious biases. There's bias against women, a gender, race, there's age bias, there's bias against people who are physically challenged or have different sexual orientations. You can have biases towards the way people behave, uh, approach a problem differently or think differently. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting because in 2016, I was on my way for an interview and it was a huge interview for me. I was going to be interviewed by Facebook to be their diversity and inclusion learning partner. Um, wow. What a great job. It's it's a fabulous job and a fabulous company to work for. And I was in, at Waterloo Station and I was trying to get from Waterloo to Euston where they are. And suddenly I heard this announcement. And um, it was the National Railway who had just launched a security uh, announce or campaign that year or that day. And they said, if you see any luggage or any package uh, and you think it's suspicious, please report it to us. And at the end, they said three things. They said, see it, say it, sort it. Okay. And I thought, and I thought to myself, this is kind of what we have to do as facilitators. We see it happening in our minds. We say to ourselves, all right, now, this is a bias I'm holding. And you need to sort it out in the moment. Say, okay, we have to, I have to get rid of that. This is, this is not useful. This is not helpful. This is not going to help their learning. I, I think this is such an important point about being a good facilitator. And yeah. I, I know, like, my own biases. I know I, know I have biases. And just becoming aware and they're not as as you said they're not as simple as you know gender or or race and those sorts of things which they're they're more subtle they're about how people communicate or your perceptions Mm. about somebody else's intelligence or how interesting Mm. somebody might be those are the ones that kind of i've become aware of over time that i have and just being aware Mm -hmm. of them being able to do that i'm going to steal that see it sort it no hang on see it say it sort it i'll I'll get it right Mm. i'll get it right before i steal it see Mm. it say it sort it it's just that in itself is kind of enough. And then you you force yourself to listen. And this happened to me actually sort of fairly recently where I was doing a session and this person was talking and I'm thinking, oh, this is a load of rubbish, this point. And you could, mm-hmm. and you, uh, my brain was going and I was kind of almost shutting down and I forced myself to listen and forced myself to sort of really think through what she was trying to say and reframe it. And it ended up actually being quite a groundbreaking comment that really changed mm. people's perception. Mm. And it was only because I fought through that bias and helped to communicate it 
positively with that. I think you said this on the last one. It was something around being curious. Mm. Is that right? You said on, in that That's in right. that first one we recorded, you talked about just just be curious and in that kind of humble way and that just interested way, just just be curious. And I thought, well, I'll be curious about what she's trying to say. And it was actually a really good point. Well, you just, I mean, you just that example you've given. You know how you know we can be hijacked, can't we? Sometimes by you know there's somebody in the room that challenges us, or they challenge the content, and our first reaction could be, oh my, you know what this? I mean, you know, are they just trying to? You know, you, you could be, you could feel that they're trying to spoil the dynamics, or they're just trying to, uh, they want, they like the sound of their voice. I don't know, whatever. Your your first reaction could be, it could be the fight or flight syndrome. You know, you want, you know, you you're, you're feeling panicked, but actually, you're right. These Sometimes it's the people who are so unlike us. They're the people that we learn the most from. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it, even if it hadn't been a good point, it, it fortunately was, but even if it hadn't been, and still the, the, the skillful approach there was to, you know, listen you know, and try and understand. Mm, exactly. The less skillful approach was just trying to move away and get on with the fact that I've got to think about doing something else in three minutes and then there's a you know coffee break coming up or whatever mm. so I, th- I thought for myself it was a real learning point because i thought oh wow just see just see what you uncovered just because you took the time to be curious rather than dismissive exactly exactly and i mean you know in a way i sort of see facilitation i see us like leaves in the wind we're sort of flowing all the time you know from one person to one person so that kind of makes us feel not grounded that's a bit poetic I- sanita isn't it Look, listen to you. Put leaves, in, we're leaves in the wind. Blimey. I mean, my new poetry book is out. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's, but I do think there is something about grounding yourself. Because the thing is, you can't, I just think you can't teach this, this sort of thing, this sort of stuff. And, this, and be so, so insistent and really try and drive this message home that, inclusive teams work better diversity works for companies when you yourself are holding bias and i mean i say to the the, the participants whenever i work i say that i am biased i have bias i'm an indian woman and i have bias because one of the things that you can do about there's a test that you can do about unconscious bias which is the ait test i don't know if you've heard of them yeah is that the one at harvard university exactly yeah uh, and I always share my results with with with. with oh, the go team. on and tell us, Anita. Well, oh, you do not want was, to do that on the podcast. No, of course you can. Of course I can. I did the test um, because because the participants were doing the test. That's another thing. I try and do all the pre work. I set. I do it myself so that I am really really clear about what they have to do. And um, did the test, got the results. I was so shocked. I had such a strong bias about women and men, where I saw men with very correlated with career and women very correlated with home. So really seeing men with power. And I was, I, I have to say the first, my first reaction was shame and, and shock. And, you know, if I think about it, you know, what bias is, is just unconscious messages that we've had throughout our lives. And, you know, I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, in a very traditional Indian family, and men had a lot of power. My father had a lot of power. My brother had a lot of power. And then when my sister got married, her husband had a lot of power. And so 
this is 2017 and I'm 51 and it's still playing into my unconscious. Yeah, those assumptions are still there. It's fascinating, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It is. It is. And so, and that's another thing. I think, okay, if it's not a D&I uh, workshop and it could be a workshop about, I don't know, it could be a workshop about communication. It could be a workshop about critical conversations. To really create an inclusive environment, you have to share something which you've been struggling with. You know, I think self-disclosure is really underrated. I think sometimes we as professionals make this space so big between the participants and, and, and ourselves. And there, there is a professional distance that we have to keep. But, you know, these are adult learners and their experience and their resources and their lives are so fascinating. And they, they want to hear that, you know, you've made mistakes, but you tried this and it helped. And by, I think showing vulnerability also creates inclusion. Yeah, I think you're right. As long as you, as long as you don't overdo the personal stories, so it becomes no. about you. But I do think that where you have those opportunities to share, especially in subjects sensitive like bias, you have to do that. Otherwise, it's unfair to expect other people to go there. Yes, and it's unfamiliar absolutely. territory for a lot of people as well. It's very uncomfortable. And I think, again, as a facilitator, even if you're doing a, an unconscious bias workshop or again, something about critical conversations or negotiations or whatever. It's about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, it's about staying connected with those people. Just like you said, the example you gave before, staying connected with that participant who's challenging you. You know, all the, all the, all the facilitations, I'm sure the same for you that I've done. The ones that have not gone well are the ones with a great deep learning for me. Oh, okay. That's an interesting point. And I think it's because either I, either I haven't created enough psychological safety or I haven't held the group as I thought I should have, or um, maybe I felt uncomfortable with getting, un, uh, with getting uncomfortable. When we talk about things like inclusion mm. and psychological safety, there's, there's necessarily assumptions in there around what's, the, what's okay things to say and do. Mm. Let me see if I can explain this. I feel like I'm struggling a little bit to articulate myself. What I mean is, if some, if I'm sexist mm. and I don't believe women should be in the workplace, mm. and I'm, I have a female facilitator or I have female participants next to me, and I think that they shouldn't be there, mm. are my views as welcome as yours, who thinks the opposite? Absolutely, because you see, this is what I think is the mistake: is that when we talk about bias when we talk about difficult conversations or difficult subjects every voice needs to be heard yeah i mean perhaps my example is slightly extreme but uh, well at least but i don't know if it is i don't know it depends how multicultural we're going but if if my opinions are naturally exclusive rather than inclusive as a participant yeah no as a participant it's quite hard for you it's, what I'm thinking is that it's quite a struggle then for, for the facilitator to make that person feel included in an environment which is exactly against what they believe. Yeah, but then again, it's going back to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. Does that make sense, what not, I said? It does. It does make sense, what you said. But, you, you know, you can, you can have, you can say something to five people and five people interpret it in a completely different way. And, you know, it's about how they are 
it depends on so many factors, how they're feeling at work, how they're feeling in the room, how they're feeling, what happened that morning, you know, all sorts of things. It might not land the message. They might stay exclusive or they might still want to practice exclusion. I have to say, though, I think people don't, most people, there are very few people I've met in all the work I've done who are, who want to be, who want to purposely exclude. Yeah, I, th- I think my example is probably a little bit extreme. I think what my, no. I, th- I think what might be a better example would be thinking about this. The other side of what we we're going to talk about today was if we're involved in diversity and inclusion programs in a workplace, it's there that we're more likely to come up against disagreement because not everybody is necessarily convinced of the value of diversity. And sometimes when we're trying to, that, that leads to things like, you know, positive discrimination, opportunities for some people, but not other people in order to kind of, you know, get underrepresented groups more involved. That's the area where I guess we're going to get controversy. And we're going to get differences of opinion. And it might clash with the whole principle of trying to create psychological safety and inclusive space when we've got people that have very different opinions about inclusion and diversity. I think I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that I think I think there's so many layers to this. I think, first of all, there is such a buzzword, diversity inclusion. Now, everyone's talking about diversity inclusion programs in 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 L&D. You know, um, it's it's something I, I don't know if you remember about. I don't know, was it about in 2011, everyone was talking about talent, talent management. Yeah, yeah. And, and it just seems like the new the new talent management, um, which is, you know, and it has got something to do about with talent. I think companies have to take responsibility on an organisational level if they want to see a change on an individual level. There are going to be people who don't believe in an organisation. They might, they might feel that it's not fair. Um, they might feel that it's unnecessary it's uh it's going a bit over the top we're becoming too politically correct but the thing is is that from i think where sometimes companies fail is because one it feels like a tick in the box exercise it's not humanized yeah definitely yeah and secondly the definition how they define dni is so varies so much and so it's so sometimes it's so complicated. And I always say to people, you know, if you can explain to a six year old, that's what it needs to be. You know, it has to be very, you know, keep it simple, stupid, because that's what it has. To, it's a kiss method, you know, really keep it simple. So I think there are lots of different reasons why people don't believe or they don't. They, they're skeptical. However, I don't believe people say that out loud because it's not politically direct, correct to say that out loud. I think you're right about that. And when people do say it out loud, it's, it's I mean, the James Damore example, um, it springs to mind. Yes. Uh, and of course, he's, he was at Google. I don't know how, how much people know about it, but he was at Google and Google are kind of pioneers in the in the area yes. of workplace diversity and unconscious bias and all these things. And they've done some great resources you can get online for that. But James mm-hmm. Damore spoke out about mm-hmm. this. Uh, I think the bit that got him fired was saying that the reason women are less represented in certain parts of the business like leadership or coding was to do with inherent traits that are different mm. that are different in men and women and he provided mm. whatever research to back up his ideas mm. and this is what got him fired mm. because it was enforcing gender stereotyping according to Google mm-hmm. but you have to think there what happened what happened to 
to, to what happened to James that he felt so strongly to write an internal memo, a 10 page internal memo. So what happened to that DI program at Google? What was going on for the people who are in the majority group? And this is what I'm saying about all voices. I think that's that's a great question. What had happened that would provoke somebody into doing that? And I, I think I think what happened, partly what happened, I think, was the success of Google in the sense that they created enough psychological safety that he felt he could do that. Yeah. So I think in one way that's actually quite a positive thing, although a lot of the point he was making was people that didn't have what he described as a left-leaning liberal bias mm. were, were less able to speak out. So perhaps, mm. perhaps I'm making assumptions I shouldn't be there. But I think mm. that what he what he argued was that opportunities were more restricted for mm. him as a, a a white male i don't know mm. i don't know his sexuality or anything like that um, but as far as mm. as far as i know he's non-disabled white male um mm. and i i don't know his religion or anything but he was obviously in a group that was not being targeted well mm. no, no i'm wrong i'm saying obviously he was maybe maybe not but his his argument was that certain groups it wasn't on merit i guess there was a certain amount of positive discrimination in terms of trying to get underrepresented groups more represented in certain parts of the business. So I don't know if he'd just been seen that, observed it and felt it was inappropriate or whether he was a victim of it. I'm not sure. Well, there's something about Silicon Valley's workplace culture. People talk about Silicon Valley sort of, you know, uh, workplace culture. But there's something going on before that. You know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's a, it, you know, I think it was Maxine Williams from... Um, Facebook, the global diversity head, she said, we need guides and we need influencers in our lives. And there are parents, there are teachers, there are uncles, there are aunts. And, you know, this whole, you know, when, when it comes to the organisation, there's a story before that of why we're rejecting DNI. There's a story before that why, we, why we're feeling biased. There's a story before that. So it's the same thing with this Google um, memo. It was something he felt, and all. And my question really is how he, what he risked to send that internal memo, and either he must have felt so passionately about it, or he completely, you know, obviously his views. I don't agree with his views, but he must have wanted to make a point somewhere. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why he felt the need to do it. Why it was such an important factor, but maybe you know, irrespective of that, the the, the views that he the views that he put down there were essentially not politically correct. No. And I haven't read his entire memo, but to me, I think I, I, I think the point that we're making in this context... What are the points we're making? <laughs> I think the point we're making in this context is that creating psychological safety, allowing people to speak out, will allow views that aren't aren't necessarily politically correct or aren't necessarily you know from the playbooks you will get views that are from are, are differently are different and his reaction was very much a reaction to the google's diversity and inclusion effort and we were talking about how to create a, you know a really good di- diversity and inclusion how to do that how to facilitate it how to make it memorable how to make it stick and i think you can use things like you know uh, james demore's story as a really interesting way into this kind of conversation Oh, definitely. And, I, you know, this this became the diversity and inclusion, well, non, non-diversity inclusion story um, in the headlines, you know, for, for a few weeks. But, you know, when we talk about what, you know, he broke diversity and inclusion is about respecting people, respecting others, wherever you're from. And it's, it's about 
communicating with integrity and 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 also behaving with integrity and and thinking about the other and he did he broke all those rules and so you know that's for me i think when it you know google have done such an immense job in trying to create a great diversity and inclusion program but the way i see organizations when we talk about diversity inclusion it's not just about race and gender it's about people it's about everybody yeah and i think that's that's i think the much more interesting side of all of this diversity and i have to say james demore did make the same point actually in his defense he did he did say that the he felt that the effort put in on things like race and gender wasn't put in on softer things like you know people's personality traits or problem solving approaches or whatever it might be those kind of much more subtle things and i think he's right on that and i think that's the much more interesting side of diversity oh i mean it's really I mean, and it absolutely like you know uh, last week um i had i was in a, a i was running a dni workshop and a white male said to me you know i i've got a i've got a lovely lady who works for me and when she presents she's very capable when she presents she giggles and i don't know what to say because i'm so scared of being seen as being sexist right now the beauty is that organization has allowed him or in the group he felt comfortable enough to bring that up so and i said i really congratulated him i said this is the type of thing we need to hear you know it's not about just one type of minority it's about everyone diversity inclusion is about everybody yeah, and I think this is where it gets interesting. And well, I, I feel like I'm just going to repeat myself actually. So let me ask a different question instead. Mm. In terms, in terms of actually, if we're facilitating within this L&D environment, we're being asked to be part of this DNI program. Do you have any kind of top tips or things that we can do to make it memorable, to make it a bit different, to make it feel not like that tick boxy thing that you mentioned? Uh, first of all, I would ask. I, I think use their contexts um, as much as possible. Either I would get them to do some pre-work where they have, you know, some stories about diversity and inclusion. Um, I would also ask them to do some role plays um, in class as well. Make it very, again, humanise it. Make it real. Let's just go back over those for a second, though, because I think when you say use their context, what do you mean by that? So, for example, I would ask them, have you been in a situation where you have, ex- first of all, the first question I always ask everybody, have you ever felt excluded? Right, Every- okay. Everybody has felt excluded. Everybody. So people will say yes, and, and I'll ask them to start, re- if they, to share. Not everybody shares, but most people share. And that's really to start the empathy muscle going. So, oh, I felt excluded. Yes, I felt excluded when I was 10. I wasn't included in the netball team or, you know, I was left out at a friend's birthday party when I was 12 and all the boys went or whatever. Everybody has experienced exclusion. So then that's a real landing point. We've all experienced exclusion, all of us. But people yeah. from minority groups are more likely to be to experience exclusion than those of majority groups. So then we also look at different, we look at their context. So we look at maybe they've been in a meeting and uh, somebody hasn't been included because of language or accent or uh, they're introverted. They don't, they don't speak up. That's cognitive because that's another thing. Cognitive diversity is very, very interesting. And that's everybody. 
Um, and I really focus on cognitive diversity because I think as a facilitator, that's when, again, you get that inclusion. So let's, let's just think about that for a second, because I agree with you. I think that's much more the interesting side of this. Mm. I love that idea of saying, have you ever been excluded? Mm. So you've, as you said, you get people's empathy going, everyone's got an example. Mm. And then you talked about different circumstances. So like, are you then saying that you would do that and not off that question, you would then start asking people to say, uh, where does it happen? What kinds of places do you feel excluded? Or have you seen exclusion? Yes, exactly. I mean, either they share with a partner, first of all, or, or they, they we, we, and then they, they note down where it happens for them, for in their context. So right. now, very often what they find out at the end is that everybody has very, have very similar stories. They've noticed it in a meeting, or they've noticed that they haven't been promoted, or a woman says that when she came back after having her baby, um, she didn't feel visible, and all sorts of stories. They can, they can, they can change. They can, they can vary from from country or context, etc. But we use then that context. We use that in the role play. How could we then see it, say it, sort it? I go right, back to okay. the national campaign for security by British. Thank you, British Rail. <laughs> yeah. So we'd be now. We're now going to be role playing mm. your netball team exclusion or yeah. meeting the time in the meeting when whatever happened. Okay. And I just want to make a plug here, by the way, for an old podcast on this thing by Larry Reynolds because he talked about a really really useful technique for doing role plays in a way that really works well and that I've used a lot since that podcast so if you're listening to this please do go back and look for that Larry Reynolds um, role plays really good one oh, I'll have a look at that I'll have a listen, listen to that again have you, have you not uh, listened I'm sure I have actually now you said his name Larry I remember I listened to it but I'm going to go back to it again so for example if I give you an ex- very often I get them to role play. So we have we have a, an A, B, and C. We have the manager, and uh, we have then the the member of staff who's working for the manager, and then we have an observer. Right. Um. So so for example, I wouldn't. So uh, the netball the netball example I wouldn't use. It's about their con- professional context. So very often the people in the majority groups would then talk about where they seen or they perceived bias um, or exclusion and some people will actually say that they've been and they will actually use their own example of being of having been excluded so we I create this triad and the observer just watches the conversation and after three minutes the observer then feedbacks to the, the two and they they I give them some guiding questions like you know what did you what were you seeing what were you hearing what was their state like? What were the questions? Were the questions open? Were they direct? Were the were you know how much empathy did you witness? And then they just we just keep changing. We 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 change. I mean I I think role play makes it really real. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. People hate role play. I mean every time I I don't I don't I haven't met anybody who loves role play. Uh, they're very few. I do. I like it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Can't, I, mean, I think it's so powerful. It it just gives you such a great insight into the other and into yourself. I like the idea of the observer as well, because the observer is just there witnessing. I, I was just going to say, I think the observer is essential, yes. actually. Otherwise, 
uh, you know anything can happen the conversation goes in a different nobody's really conscious of what's happening they might just break off and just get distracted Mm. Uh, any kind of thing where I think you're practicing skill or anything like that, the observer role is absolutely critical. Mm. And I, I would say put people in, if you haven't got the threes, if it doesn't work out, I would say put people in fours rather than pairs. Mm. So even if you've got two observers, it's mm. still worthwhile having that observer role. Mm. And, you know, there's something about that, 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 that conversation is quite, it, it's a critical conversation. It's a difficult conversation. And then you're getting, you know, uh, you're getting feedback from a peer. You're suddenly in, you're suddenly practicing, you're in, you're going live with this, with this topic. Um, and, you know, again, I, having an observer and being in the little groups, I think that, that creates such an inclusive environment because you have a different conversation. Yeah. Would you manage those groups? As it, by that I mean, would you deliberately mix them up and make them diverse? Yeah, I do. I don't let them, I, I would really try and manage that before. Either I would, I, I always say to them, also uh, go, go work with someone you don't know very well. Because it's a chance to really get to know people. That's again, you know, um, it's, it's about a conclusion. It's about, not, it's about including everybody. You speak to everybody in the room. So in this example here, we're talking about we've done all that stuff to make people included that we talked about at the beginning. We've done this question where we say we're, we're getting people to be empathetic and we, we said, have you ever felt excluded? We've talked about that in pairs to come up with scenarios, context is the word you used. Mm. We've then gone off and listened to Laurie Reynolds' podcast and come back and set up a brilliant role play. Mm. So we're role playing around that. And that, uh, what I find interesting about this is I suspect a lot of people would have come in thinking I'm just going to be lectured at and told not to be racist and sexist and all the rest of it. And you haven't even gone there. You've talked about it in a much subtler way. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have had people say at the end or they've said some some really probably quite shocking things to admit in a, in a group. But they've said it and I just think, wow that really meant that they felt so comfortable to say that. And they said, I don't feel proud of what I feel, but I, I did feel, I do feel like that. I did feel like that. Or I do feel like that sometimes because it's not, it's not a one day workshop that's going to change all your values and beliefs that you've held for so many years. But the fact that they've said that it, it comes from them. You know, the thing is, that it, and you know, this, there's so much information and research about DNI and unconscious bias and inclusion and diversity. And now there's so much neuroscience uh, research. So we have, we have examples and experiments where they, where your brain shows that you've been biased or you, or that, you know, you have a, a preference for the in group rather than the out group. Oh, I didn't know we had that level of evidence now. We've got neuroscience in on the, in on this, have we? Oh, yes. There's a very good article. There's an experiment that's done and they showed, would you like me to share? Yeah, go on then, yeah. It's a, well, it's, I can put a link as well on the yeah, website. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll share the link with you. They basically showed Chinese faces and Caucasian faces to Chinese uh, uh, group and a, and a Caucasian group. And when they thought, when they thought the Chinese face had a needle or a Q-tip, they had more empathy for their group their race group than the other. Blimey, I didn't know about that. Mm. And there's another one. Uh... So, I mean, that's really, that's quite controversial, really, isn't it? Because you're, you're essentially saying that racism is inherent yes. in, in who we are. 
I think it's called Do You Feel My Pain, if I remember correctly. Okay, so we've done those role plays. So what's next? I would suggest to them, and I would I would invite them to really think about real actions. So learning to application. So we've had a day together. We've looked at the neuroscience. We've looked at the research. We've looked at ourselves. We've looked at our context, and then we role played it. And then I would really get them to think about um, their own action plans. So what's going to change when they go back on Monday? Have two or three actions at tops. So, for example, in if I see in my team that, I don't know, Annabelle's talking over Petra or whatever, I will say, please let Annabelle, I'd really like to hear what Petra has to say. They go away with a personalised action plan. And I also also ask them to share the action plan before they leave. And one thing I would really, really stress is is the follow on. My feeling is, as a facilitator, it's so lovely to spend a day with, the, with, with a group of people and talk about this. Because it's, so, so it's such a, a wonderful subject. And then and then and then what next? So what? What happens then in the company? I think that's a really important really key thing because it's it, it is kind of a, a it's a very interesting topic it's fascinating in fact but it's it's it, it can often feel a little bit like well okay but now what do i do I, and you could even get to the point of thinking oh my god i'm scared to make any decision ever again because i i'm so convinced of my own bias now mm. so so having some kind of as you said very very actionable very doable things and the example you gave there was you actually noticed the bias so you your action was i will challenge it when i see it or whatever it's those kind of very, very doable, very tangible things that are so important because otherwise it's just interesting, fluffy stuff. Mm. But I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing is, is that you're, as from an organization point of view, you're expecting people to invest their time and their time in, 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 in something like DNI. And then you come back and nothing's done with it. So the organization really has to create a culture of diversity and inclusion. You know, very often it feels like a tick in the box. And so this means the follow on for me is is to, you know, either create a buddy system or there's follow up learning online or there's a chance for people to 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 bring, come together again and and discuss what's happened since the action plans. There has to be a culture of diversity inclusion. So right from the from the from the top to the bottom. You know, George Kohlreiser, who, who wrote Posture at the Table, uh, he's a leadership professor at IMD. He talks about putting the fish on the table. So he says that if you don't, if you leave a fish underneath the table after three or four days, it starts smelling. So you have to put the fish on the table. It's a, gr- a great analogy. But if the fish's head is on the table, but the fish's head is, is still under the table, it's still going to smell. So that it really has to come from the top. Right. So it, yeah, I, I think the fish analogy got a, <laughs> got a bit tortured. <laughs> I mean, a bit. <laughs> I just imagine how it could have a head on the table. Or oh, was it a head on head on the? Anyway, sorry. Part of the fish under the table. Part of the fish on the table. <laughs> but ignoring that, I think the the point about um. Yeah, it, if you, well, I mean, it's true of any L&D, of course, if, if you if you can have this brilliant thing and then you go back into a system which doesn't support the learning, then that's not going to stick. But especially with things like this, which are more intangible, 
so, so from our point of view as L&D people, what are we going to be doing to try and encourage that, encourage the organisation to, to ensure that they've thought beyond a tick box exercise? Well, I think it's really important to explain to L&D, you know, what do you want from this? What are your objectives? What are you hoping to change? Right, that's it, isn't it? It's get that objective down. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's. Uh, I think it was your last podcast. It was very, it was the one before I was listening to, it could be in a replay. And the, there was somebody talking about, they walked out of facilitation and then somebody to go and get them from their car and he took a risk, but he was just, he was just not happy. And, and it was really interesting. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's the collusion of mediocrity. Exactly. And I just thought, wow, what a risk he took. Because, you know, as independent, um, you know, when you're a facilitator or L&D, uh, L&D uh, facilitator, you, you take a risk about, you know, speaking your truth and perhaps not getting the work um, that you, you want or losing out on a contract. But I always ask people, you know, what do you want? What do you, you know, what do you want after this? Do you, if, if, if this is a tick in the box exercise, that's all you're going to get then. So be, I think that be very clear, be very honest. Um, and, and be quite courageous, isn't it? That is a quite a courageous position to take. You know, what do you really want to get here? And, and actually, if you have an objective, which is we want to create a genuinely inclusive workplace, blah, de blah, suddenly just doing a training course starts to look a little bit weedy, doesn't it? It's just like, well, it, it, it would force you to think much more broadly. Yeah. But obviously creating much more effective actions. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to finish because you start with the end in mind. Yeah. Start with the objective. Mm. And if that's where you start when you're getting involved in this kind of thing. I mean, it's important anyway in L&D, of course. But uh, the, I think it's particularly important here just because of that intangibleness mm-hmm. about it. And it's got a bit of a whiff of, of being the latest fashionable thing, as you mentioned previously. Mm. And therefore, it's... It, it, it is kind of vulnerable to tick boxiness. Mm. So I think really kind of taking that professional approach, nailing it down with that ob- objective, mm. is a great is a great place to start. Mm. So thank you very much for your time today, Sunita. Thank you so much, John. And for your fish analogies. <laughs> I won't do it again, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sunita. Thank you so much, John. Take good care.